Welcome to our podcast. Good news, we are currently running a special promotion for new Hedgeye podcast listeners. Get your first month free to any one of our investing products for brand new Hedgeye subscribers. Email Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com to get yours. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hi, I'm Keith McCullough, and welcome back to another edition of Real Conversations, where it's my pleasure to have John Malden, who's the chairman of Malden Economics. He's well-known. You guys probably have a lot of questions for him. We're going to let you ask those questions. Uh, definitely, I'm going to get to ask the first one, though, here, John, first, so thanks for making the time. Thank you. Yeah, first Good to one, be with you, by the way, Keith. Yeah, it's good love, to, you guys, love you guys. Love your work. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. We love yours, too, and, and your audience. You have, like, one of the... One of the most brilliant audiences I can find out there. They're really, uh, they're really my into audience, what you're doing. My readers are really sharp and smart. I, I will agree with you there. I like that. I like that. Uh, first thing I want to ask you is more of a personal thing on starting thoughts from the front line. And again, this audience is very well aware of what that is. But I was quite curious in, in terms of what got you to get up in the morning and get after that because it's been a great piece of uh, or compendium of work, really. At the beginning. Uh, I mean, I've been a writer from since you know high school and college, and at the very beginning of it, it was a way for me to kind of organize my thoughts. It was a little shorter. It was what have I read this week? What you know, there wasn't an online a lot of information. There were books, there were magazines, there was the library, and um, so I began to write my letter, and in. Uh, 2000, you know, I had a few thousand email names. I, so I started sending this letter to those email names mm. and it just took off. Um, back then, nobody did a free letter. So everybody forwarded it to everybody else. Everybody subscribed. That was the one thing I did was I said, if you want to continue to get my letter, uh, if you want to read past four paragraphs, you've got to give me your email address. And back then, nobody thought that there was anything to giving somebody an email address because we weren't inundated with information. Uh, today, it would be a lot harder for a new kid on the block to start up. But it still is. This is what I've read this week. This is what's on the top of my mind. And uh, its focus has changed and drifts over the years. But it's still, what am I reading now? What am I thinking about? That's fantastic. I mean, because a lot of people, as you know, they don't actually read. Uh, you know, reading things is a, it is still at, at this day and age is a differentiated concept. But I think it, it, what you do a great job of is contextualizing I read, you know, what I you read. read. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, and people really don't always have a historical context to refer their current opinion on, and you certainly have a lot of those. The the, the one that I think is most interesting right now. Uh, if only because you coined it, I think you coined it, which is quantitative tightening, or QT. Um, did you coin that? And, uh, and if you did, you know, what, can you just kind of explain to the people who don't know what that is and just walk through your thoughts? I don't believe I coined that, uh, though I picked it up pretty quickly. I, I forget who I first read it from. Uh, but it is a, it's the opposite of quantitative easing. And when they begin to take that money off the table, uh, they're trying to tell us that it's not going to have the same effect that it had when they put it on the table. Uh, the Federal Reserve now is kind of wondering, scratching their head, where's the inflation? Well, the inflation is in asset prices. And for them to think that they can do a QT, um, even though it's going to be graduated and it's going to increase over time, and for it not to have an effect on asset prices, I think is unrealistic. I 
I think it is unwise in the extreme to do both quantitative tightening and raising rates uh, at the same time. I mean, honestly, really, they should have been raising rates four years ago. This, this economy could handle another 50 bips uh, in uh, low-end interest rates. I think that's probably where they would be anyway. They, they might be ooching up a little bit closer to 2% if we keep seeing 3% GDP uh, numbers. Mm -hmm. But um, we're in a low interest rate environment naturally for a long time, I think. The, the economy is, um, and anticipating the question that's always there, inflation versus deflation. The, the economy is naturally deflationary. The, the world is producing more stuff, if you will, at lower costs. Mm -hmm. I mean, this week in my letter, I, I showed a, a, a graph that showed the rather significant growth in the number of oil rigs being used in the U.S. And it compared it to the fact that the number of oil workers on rigs are beginning to decline. And that's because on rigs, there's now something called an iron roughneck that will eventually replace uh, 15 out of the 20 workers that are needed on the rigs to put those pipes into the ground. And it is a, uh, I've been on those rigs when they're doing it. It's nasty, dangerous, dirty, and if you're in the Bakken during winter, it's cold. So technology, innovation, productivity, that, that, that all makes sense. How about the demographic side? I know that um, you and Neil Hauer are friends, and he's, he works alongside us here. Uh, how, how well understood do you think the demographic forces are as a deflationary force relative to, you know, to, to, the, to the consensus that we're going to have some kind of worldwide breakout in inflation? I don't think people get it. I mean, honestly, it's counterintuitive. <laughs> uh, and if you look back, what's been our experience now for 40 years? I mean, the boomers, the Gen X, it's, we have inflation. I mean, uh, you're not old enough to remember, Keith, but some of us lived through 18% inflation in the U.S., and uh, uh, I would, you know, 21% uh, prime rates. It was, you know, a scarring moment. And to watch inflation come down over years, it was still, it, it came down from the high, you know, the, the high teens to the uh, mid teens, to the low teens. And Greenspan was still fighting inflation in the 90s. Uh, and, and shoving against it, trying to bring it down. And it wasn't really uh, until this last uh, global recession that we began to see deflationary forces and the dis seeing uh, 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 inflation disappear. And that's happening for several reasons. Number one, we're seeing the uh, uh, velocity of money just fall out of bed. But that's not since the Great Recession. That was... That the velocity of money started uh, falling uh, uh, slowly during the uh, uh, middle of the presidency of George W. Bush. So uh, this is a uh, uh, an economic force that is going to continue as the country gets older. 
if you look at the amount of quantitative easing that the Bank of Japan has done, I mean, just magnitudes more than what we've done in the U.S., and inflation there is almost non-existent. They've been living in a deflationary economy for 20-plus years. The uh, uh, nominal GDP of their country is not much different than it was 25 years ago. And that's a big deal. Now, we're in the U.S. somewhat a reflection of that 25 years ago as we are starting to age ourselves. Europe, especially some of the countries in Europe like Italy, uh, uh, Spain, and others that have a uh, just a real lack of births. So they're aging, they're getting older. And they're going to see this deflationary pressure as well. Italy's a great call out, John. That's a, we'll show a chart right now that shows the population growth rate of 35 to 55-year-olds. And we showed across the world. But Italy's actually, maybe, and not surprising to you, but maybe surprising to some, that'll be getting older faster than any civilized economy uh, for the next five years. They're going to have negative population growth rate, John, of, five, uh, of, of basically 2% for the next five years. Uh, which is just the most daunting statistic uh, to me, or at least in terms of a forward-looking statistic. And I wonder if, 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 if anybody agrees on the deflationary risk, is it not Draghi and the Europeans? Do you think that, that, that they get it? I thought that he was relatively dovish last week. They really expected inflation to come back when they started uh, printing money. And right. then they printed more, and then they printed more. <laughs> it's not technically printing. They're buying uh, uh, assets and so forth. But... It's the same effect in, in shoving euros into their economy. And there's no inflation. I mean, there's some asset price inflation. But what you have is boomers. You know, you get to be 50, 55 years old. You bought most of the stuff, the big stuff, the big ticket stuff that you want. Um, <clears throat> you're not going out and uh, buying that fast red car unless you're, you know, 50 years old, single for some reason, and <laughs> trying to relive your youth. Um, and and uh, if you're if you're my age, John, if you're 42 and you got four kids, I mean, I know you have, I think you have seven, so you, you get it. But um, you know, then it, your sports car is gone. It turns into some something that uh, the that, that somebody else is going to drive. Mine's an Infiniti SUV, and uh, um, I'm perfectly happy with it. And in fact. I don't drive that much at all anymore. My kids are all out of the house. We're, we're empty nesters. And the, the reality is that I've got less than, on a six-year-old car, less than 45,000 miles. Wow. I, I'm not going to be buying a car for another five, seven, eight years. And when I do, it'll probably be a, uh, um, some type of electric vehicle, SUV, a little bit smaller, and uh, automated driving. Uh, I, I will be an early adopter of automatic driving. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm one of those guys that that's honest. When they ask you the question, are you a better than average driver? And 80% of the people say yes. <laughs> I'm one of the 20% that admit that the world would be safer if I wasn't on the road. <laughs> I just start daydreaming. And, you know, God, uh, you know, you lose situational awareness. That's the worst thing in the world. Uh, I cannot wait 
Uh, I let Shane drive most of the time. I mean, I, I can't wait to have a car that I get into the car and say, James, take me here. And it does. <laughs> but these things, as you know, become a much bigger problem when the economy slows. How do you think about that when you, when you, some, you, you see some of these big balance sheet issues, pension pension crisis pending. I mean, it's ongoing. It's not pending. Uh, how, how do you think about that in terms of timing? Do you get a lot of questions on it? Because it's a lot easier to see these warts and, and implosions once we're on the backside of an economic cycle, is it not? Well, it, it is. And when we see the next uh, recession, I don't know where that is. Economy just seems to be doing fine. I just assume we not see a recession for a very long time. Um, but when we see the next recession, you'll probably see, you know, what happens is the uh, uh, assets of those pensions shrink because they've got a lot of them in stocks. Right. And now they become even more unfunded and underfunded. And the um, it just starts cascading on itself. And you start seeing severe problems in California and in many, many states. Um, and it, I think because of the debt that we have in this country, um, public, private, all combined together, that the recovery is going to, for the, after the next recession, it's going to be even slower. Yeah. And that's because debt has a drag in or is a drag on uh, growth. Mm -hmm. there's, just, there's no question about it. All the data points that way. So um, it it's going to make those problems even more severe. And, you know, maybe it's 2019, 2022, something like, you know, whenever um, you, you begin to see this. I mean, here's what's going to happen sometime in the uh, 22, 2022 and after, you're going to start seeing automated cars come in. And the the uh, adoption curve is going to be like every technological adoption curve we've ever seen. It starts off slow, it goes up, and then it hits a tipping point, and it goes up like this and then balances off. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm writing about this tech spread. Rethink X, which is a little bit over the top in their report, but they're talking about the number of cars from going from 2020 being manufactured in the U.S. to 18 million, that by 2030 it'll be 5.6 million. Maybe to 2035, and I'd be a little bit more comfortable with that, but that's what's going to happen. We're going to be buying many, many, many less cars. That All those jobs are going to wait. Uh, all the taxi and the truck driver jobs are, not all of them, but many of them are going away. Uh, we don't get rid of all our cars. Uh, if you're in uh, rural America, you're going to need a car. The, the transportation the service is not going to work very well for you. But uh, we're going to need, it's going to change the way we, we build our roads. It's going to change the way we think about highways and, and localities. But it's, it's going to change the nature of emergency rooms. Uh, 30 million people die less, then you're not going to need as many insurance agents because you're going to get an in, uh, the, the whoever owns the car that's driving it as a service gets the insurance and they're buying it from a big company. I mean, this is going to be a massive implosion of jobs, which I see really is the ultimately large crisis starting in the middle of the next decade. 
as we begin to see jobs just disappear. And we as a country are not prepared for uh, massive unemployment on a scale that uh, uh, is going to hit the big cities uh, just as much as it hits small rural America when, you know, the main uh, company in town leaves. Yeah, I mean, uh, if, you look at, if you look at that timeline, I mean, it's hard to implement that in terms of portfolios, but the reality is that if you look at the inevitability of an economic cycle slowdown, that, that is indeed going to happen. At some point, we're, we're going to have to say, what, what, even if it's in 2018, 2019, in the next three to five years, what you're saying effectively is that technology, productivity runs into the cycle. And that's when all the, you know, the really deflationary forces become readily apparent. The whole, the whole cycle, everything I was talking about is massively deflationary. We're yep. getting older. We're becoming more productive. Um, the more productive you get, that means you're producing more stuff for less cost. Yep. And uh, if you don't charge less, your competitor will, and you're going to have to keep driving your costs down to maintain market share. Um, I mean, Amazon's deflationary. <laughs> you know, I mean, they just are. Yeah, obviously. Uh, they're forcing all of the uh, uh, brick and mortar stores to drop their costs. Yeah. Walmart's deflationary. That's just what happens. Now, um, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, I'm going to ask you some questions from your uh, from your your million man movement, uh, million man. And, and this <laughs> uh, is a lot of women, a lot of women, and I met a. Thirteen-year-old reader last weekend. So thank you very much. I heard it's ninety percent women that follow you, John. uh, That that, that's just I I I heard that. People all the time that I've got groupies anywhere I go in the world. (laughs) My problem is they're fifty-year-old white guys. Oh, oh, geez. I mean, I don't like that. That's that's. Let's just stop with that. Uh, (laughs) Here's a good question, and this is an interesting one. Um, that m- most people don't ask people, but it's certainly a big industry, and it certainly represents a lot of baby boomers and what you you coined the only asset inflation, which is you know stocks, bonds, and and other. You know, what key risks do you think they're going to be in the FA and the RIA world? I got good news and I got bad news. Let's see how I can The bad news is that half of them are going to lose their jobs. They're going to go away in the next ten years. Oh boy. The good news is. Um, the other half that figure out how to get ahead of the curve, figure out how to not do the same old thing that they've been doing in the past, are going to be able to take pick up market share, and their books, the, the money under management that they have, is going to grow. Mm. Now, so all you've got to do is figure out how not to be a buy and hold, uh, uh, we're going to do the same thing we've been doing for the last 50-year advisor, how to get ahead of the curve, how to have dynamic portfolios. And maybe a final question on that. Like, how do you, and we have, there's like three different ways people have asked this question. Like, when you get up in the morning, how do you track financial market risk? Um, and, and when would you give a tap on the shoulder to the group of people that you're working with on your portfolios? Actually, I pay them to get up in the morning. <laughs> And to assess risk. I mean, I mean, ben, I'm true. just going to be blunt with you here, okay? No, no it's a, uh, it's, it's a full time job. You need a team doing it. I agree with you. It, it, oh God, and they've got big teams. Yeah, and these aren't these aren't one man operations. They've got teams of people sitting around uh, researching, writing, thinking, writing these algorithms, playing right. with them, uh, and. I think people wake up, John, like the way that they wake up, the people asking the question this way, and it's no, no offense uh, meant uh, to them whatsoever. They live in the old wall world where George, they believe George Soros would wake up in the morning and just change his mind. You know, that's, it's just a very different 
um, when they when and, they and, when, and I don't know how George operates, uh, but when I have talked to people that have worked with him and for him, I've talked to people that manage his uh, agricultural properties. For instance, hmm. he's what people don't realize that he's one of the one of the largest, if not the largest, landowners and ag producers in South America. Uh, that's not waking up one morning and deciding to, I think I'm just going to go out and, and short the British pound. When they make those decisions, they talked about it, they bounced it around, they researched it. Um, there was a lot of thought and effort and, and background that went on it, just like your clients and the hedge funds that you that you guys work with do. I mean, um, sometimes we as individuals wake up and we get a, a bell that goes off on our heads as we should buy ourselves some emotion. I mean, maybe we had the wrong Italian sausage the last night. <laughs> um, the the that's not way the way professionals run their money and. I actually tell people that I think 97% of people should have a professional run their money and they shouldn't be doing it. Um, I mean, I have professionals running my money and people think I know what I'm doing and they think I've got my pulse on the market. I know myself well enough that other than choosing managers, I shouldn't be choosing investments. I choose managers which choose investments for me. Right. And I'm comfortable with my ability to choose managers. Mm. I've gotten good at it over the decades. But I, you don't want me uh, looking at a trading screen trying to decide, you know, am I going to buy the flashing red one because it's gone down 7%. I, I, I don't have the stomach <laughs> for that, nor the ability, nor the uh, skill set. I, I think with experience comes humility, especially when we're talking about markets. So that's, uh, I'm sure, you have, everyone you know, very much appreciates A man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Last question. I can't believe I have to ask this question, but I, it's coming through in the queue. Um, <laughs> the GOP, and again, to preface this, John, I am Canadian. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. Okay? Uh, <laughs> You're asking me a political question. What, is, what is the future of the GOP? I've had three different people have asked that question. I guess they think you know. Okay, full disclosure. I was on the executive committee for the Republican Party for 20 years here in Texas. Well, that's I have I've done a lot of big uh, uh, fundraisers. I've worked with big campaigns, small city council campaigns. I understand the process. With this last election, I no longer understand what is going on. I've talked with friends of mine around the country. We're clueless. There is something happening in the U.S. that is a cultural shift. And I don't think uh, Trump was the uh, culmination of that shift. I think he's the harbinger. He's the beginning. Mm -hmm. As we see more and more jobs begin to disappear in the face of automation, as we see more and more people's retirements being threatened, they're going to get frustrated. Bernie Sanders, if he had been in a Republican-style uh, nominating process, i.e. Hillary Clinton had 800 superdelegates that were in her bag when she started out. 
Okay. The Republicans, it's one man, one vote. Bernie Sanders may very well have won the nomination uh, in that type, type of one man, one votes uh, process. The, the Democrats don't understand what their future is. Both political party elites are clueless. They think they understand where the levers of power are, and the levers of power out in the votes, out in the precincts, are shifting. Let's look at what happened in France with Macron. If you'd gone back two years before their election, you said, there's going to be somebody coming out of the center party that's going to run for president and not only win, but he's going to get people in every one of their districts uh, to run and run for their parliament. And he's going to take a massive, overwhelming lead. People would have laughed at you. But he devastated both the political left and the political right, the parties that had been sharing power for 70 years. To think that can't happen in the U.S., you're not paying attention. The party elites think they still understand what's going on. They don't. The, the frustration in America is palpable. Right now, they want their political leaders to fix things, which means make their life better. And... The problem is politicians can't even fix the problems we have, let alone the problems that we're going to have, let alone the problems that are frustrating these people. The, the, um, this, this massive uh, opioid crisis, but it's also a suicide and, and death from alcohol in 45 to 50-year-old whites who've basically given up hope. They've lost their jobs. They're, they're, they're just... They're trying to numb their pain. That's growing. That's a crisis. And it's the opioid, the opioid deaths and the opioid use is a symptom, not a cause. And I think we need to recognize in the United States that this social upheaval is, could be very, very serious. Uh, it's likely to be the driver in politics and society for a while. And we're going to have to start thinking the unthinkable. Well, we're going to have to start thinking about answering age-old questions in completely different ways. And it may offend, as I wrote in my letter, it may offend every uh, Hayekian neuron in my brain. <laughs> but we've got to start asking, how do we solve this emotional and um, uh, uh, sociological need when we're going to see jobs uh, begin to disappear because of technology. Mm -hmm. We just can't, we just can't tell these people, well, you know, go down the road too bad. We're going to, this is going to be so significant and so, so uh, across the board impactful that we're going to have to figure out how to uh, address this need. I mean, maybe we do something like guaranteed full employment. I mean, for me to even say those words is just, it offends me. Uh, not guaranteed basic income. Giving somebody an income doesn't give them fulfillment. We have to figure out how to help people find fulfillment to get meaning and purpose in life. And that's generally what comes from your job from participating in society. So 
we'll figure that out. Well, it's a lot easier for people to try to figure it out when these topics are on uh, the front line. So we 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 really appreciate this. I think that uh, you know the bigger picture here is that you're constantly flashing a light on these longer term issues. And to your point, the only way that you're going to survive is through an education here. And and again, right. go, going all the way back to when you started, I guess in 2001 with the front line, you're still on it. And I think everybody's pretty happy about that. So thanks. And, and I intend to be doing it for a long time to come. That's great. Thanks for your time. We appreciate it, John. Thank you. Appreciate it, Keith. He's John Malden. I'm Keith McCullough. He, you can find him on Twitter, actually, as well. But again, sign up for his newsletter. You'll, you'll quite enjoy all these topics. He goes in, into depth uh, about all of them. We hope you enjoyed our podcast. As a reminder, we are currently running a special promotion for new Hedgeye podcast listeners. Get your first month free to any one of our investing products for brand new Hedgeye subscribers. Email Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com to get yours. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions or conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.